Hey, everybody. My name is Aaron Solomon, and welcome to the nextlevel.com podcast, the first episode of season two. The fact that we survived season one may be a minor miracle, but here we are in season two, and we've got an amazing guest to begin the season. It's my pleasure to introduce somebody who shares the greatest first name in the world, Aaron Emery. Aaron, you're joining us from Truro or Halifax, Nova Scotia today? Uh, we're in Truro, just a small town outside Halifax. Perfect. So I've known Aaron for a while. And Aaron, we've got some very interesting things to talk about today. It's funny, on some of these podcasts, it's just a great opportunity to catch up with people that I haven't talked to in way too long, especially during these Corona times. So Aaron, your, your thing that you do kind of as your main thing these days is barbecue. <laughs> that itself is an interesting story. How did you develop your love for barbecue? Yeah, well, um, you know, barbecue is just something I always kind of hacked around in the backyard uh, growing up and a little bit, uh, you know, as I got older. And um, but really, it's sort of a convergence of, of things. Um, I don't know, a few years ago, uh, my mom was was quite ill and I moved down uh, back home to Kentucky. I've been up in Canada for about a decade. And uh, but my mom was ill and I moved to Kentucky for a few months and was really bored and, and thinking about doing some new things. So I, I, uh, I reached out some, to some barbecue restaurants, just said, Hey guys, like, can I come and hang out and uh, follow you around and learn the ways around the pits and uh, ended up getting the only guys that called me back were from a, just a legendary barbecue spot, Martin's barbecue, and uh, ended up learning from the very best in the business. Um, and so it was an exciting, I think I ended up spending about four months down there. Um, and what started out just to keep me from going crazy sitting at home, in my parents' house, um, ended up being just like really lit my fire. And I, and, and I got sort of the bigger idea of what made barbecue great. And, and for me, it's just always been so compelling that it's something that's so simple. <laughs> There's nothing to it. Um, and yet, um, unless you're dedicated to doing those simple things right, uh, you're going to screw it up. So you weren't always a barbecue guy. In fact, when we met, you were doing something that wasn't barbecue related at all. So I'm curious about kind of how your previous business experience, your previous life experience um, led you to barbecue. So why don't you talk about some of the things you were doing before? Because one of them, particularly your work in B Corp, I think really has some relevance to the stuff that you're working on now. Yeah. So, um, you know, straight out of university, I, uh, I went into the beer biz. I, uh, I was a brewer um, in Michigan for, for a couple of years um, at a brewery at the time. It was, it was a small deal, uh, New Holland Brewing Company. I don't know. I was probably there when they were six or seven years old. And then they've just blown up since then. It's been so fun to watch their rise to the top of, I think they're like the 40th largest craft brewer on the planet now. Yep. Um, and so started out in that. And then in 2005, um, Hurricane Katrina hit and just sort of like, confluence of events ended up I moved down to, to uh, Waveland, Mississippi, where the eye of the storm made landfall and ended up working down there for, I think, four months uh, doing hurricane recovery. And that sort of it, it opened my eyes to the world of social impact and sort of, uh, you know, opened my heart to that to that side of things. And, and which eventually would lead me to um, B Corp, which, you know, for me, it was sort of the the exchange between uh, a, a deep belief in capitalism and, and that 
you know, smart people driven towards money can, can come up with great ideas and drive things forward. Um, but we need a lot more heart in it. And so for me, that's what working with the, the benefit corporation certification in Canada, it's really about sort of taking all those soft, warm, fuzzy feelings and putting metrics to it and saying, it's not good enough, uh, that you feel like making impact or that you feel like you're a good guy or girl. Um, but are you actually making a difference in the world? Are you measuring your environmental footprint? Are you measuring how you treat your employees? Are you measuring your involvement in the community? Um, and spent a few years uh, bouncing around the country up, in, uh, up north in Canada, um, meeting with businesses that were just doing amazingly good things and challenging them to measure those good things that they were, that they were doing. And, and so it's really carried over for me um, in starting my own business from the very beginning. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that I, I think there's a lot of, of fluff out there in conversations about corporate social responsibility. But for me, it really was sort of just if I'm going to uh, risk everything on my end and and, you know, build a an organization and build a brand that represents me, then I'm going to do it with with my heart leading the way. And so, you know, first and foremost, we do great smoked meats, but you know, beyond that, it is, it is a commitment to the community and, and really even before that it's a commitment to employees that that's been probably the most fulfilling part for me is especially in the hospitality industry where there's so much sort of, it's, you know, it's known for, you know, sort of a, a nomadic base of employees, um, sort of drifters and whatnot that, that it, it's really about finding a space where, where they can maximize what makes them tick. And that's, you know, something that it's, it's really fun in, in interviewing folks is to ask them like, how can we actually make this a job that lights your fire and, and really mean it. And, and, you know, that I've, I've had people that, you know, they may be a hostess, um, you know, greeting people at the door uh, for their four or five hour shift, but they're really passionate about their leatherwork project and they're, and they're making, you know, tack for horses and they're shipping it around the, around the country and, and well, we'll offer them some shelf space. We'll offer them some encouragement. We'll offer them uh, introductions to other small business programs and whatnot. And, and, and so that's just been, really been to tie it back to B Corp. It is just sort of, you know, leading with your heart and, and caring about uh, tying those warm, fuzzy, soft things uh, into the, to the hard realities of your budget and, and of your P and L and all that jazz. Well, I love that you're talking about both conscious and really conscientious capitalism. And I think that particularly now in 2021, without going off on a, on a big rant, and especially over what we've seen in the past year, it's more important than ever. It's great to have a business that wants to go into the world and do good. But unless there's actually a business model, and unless, as you've just said, there's a way that you can measure its impact, then you know, you're probably wasting your energy and the chances of success are immensely low, which is why we see so many both nonprofits and social impact, quote unquote, businesses not succeed and, and fail fairly quickly as well. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I think especially, you know, over the past five years, you know, maybe 10 years, um, when it's led by the, the marketing department, uh, it's incredibly problematic and, and it's not going to, uh, the impact will not last longer than the marketing buzz, and as soon as it's it's uh, as soon as it costs you something, then then you're going to slice it from the budget. Um, versus if it's led from the top and there's buy-in, 
from the top down, really. You get your employees fired up about it and you get management fired up about it. It's something that really, it, it, it's about that sustainable impact for me. So speaking about getting fired up about things. So we had the opportunity to both work on something together a year ago and then kind of went off in different directions with the same goal. So when I moved back from, from Berlin to Canada, uh, just at the beginning of coronavirus, at the end of last March, we were having a conversation with a couple other folks as well. And we decided to launch this thing called Sustain the Line. And Sustain the Line, for those who hadn't heard about it, was really the idea of sustaining frontline healthcare workers um, as they were being overwhelmed at the beginning of the crisis. So the idea was to help small restaurants, uh, and yours was one of them, uh, by getting donations to help those restaurants provide meals to frontline healthcare workers. And, you know, honestly, like we had the idea, we built it out in the same day, and it took off very, very quickly. Tell us some of the impact that your work had, not just in Truro, but around Nova Scotia, and how you saw the community come out to support the business and to support those frontline healthcare workers. Because I think it's a very powerful lesson that's going to be more than a historical footnote. Yeah, yeah, it's, it was a, uh, <laughs> a a wild few months there, uh, you know, a full year year ago now. Um, and what really did start out as just, um, you know, in, in some ways us trying to tread water and a, as a business tie it back to like, how do we, you know, how do you make it work financially? How do you make a business plan? Um, uh, the math add up. And, and so part of it really was just like, how do we keep a couple people moving? How do we, you know, keep a couple employees on board and, and make payroll? We're not going to make any money doing this, but what can we do at a time when the restaurants are closed down, people are freaking out and healthcare workers are stressed through the roof. And, and, and so, you know, the one thing that we knew how to do was, was to cook. And so, yeah, it, what started out as, you know, we're, a three minute drive down the road from the hospital here in Truro and just sort of showing up they're calling the the head of the emergency department and saying how many people do you have on and dropping off you know 25 pulled pork sandwiches and then as we built some momentum around that we just said like <laughs> the only thing that we know how to do in this in this totally messed up time is cook and so we just kept on cooking and, and um people bought in through through you know just our own community and then the wider community that you were opening this up through sustain the line and we were getting you know phone calls from all over and you were doing in email introductions of of people wanting to give you know twenty five dollars here or two thousand dollars here and and it was really amazing that allowed us to you know over the course of of three months there deliver nearly four thousand meals um to frontline healthcare workers primarily emergency room staff uh in Dartmouth and Halifax and Liverpool and Bridgewater and Truro and New Glasgow, all across Nova Scotia. Um, and then we'd also throw in, you know, we'd get some donations specifically for uh, paramedics and, and, and EHS workers. And so, and so we would do some paramedic runs and just kind of, you know, just lighten up people's day and say, let's take a little bit of time, hit the pause button while your stress is, is on high and sit down for a meal together. And, and there's people that were doing a lot more important work and a lot harder work, um, but it was something that we could do for the community. And, and that was the most gratifying thing was to hear from doctors and nurses and frontline staff that it was just sort of a, a, a pause button for them. And, and if nothing, nothing else, I mean, everybody's gotta eat, um, but if you can eat something a little bit good, then it also you know, has, has some mental health benefits in there as well. 
the funny thing about that project, uh, which by the way has continued, we ended up doing lots of meals around Christmas time this past year, because even though people have become bored with the virus, and you know we try not to think about it as much as we did, you know the hospitals were just equally overwhelmed in a lot of places at Christmas time yeah, this for year. Sure. But one of the interesting things about that is the few criticisms that we had was about, you know, well, frontline healthcare workers can afford to feed themselves. And there were two issues with that. Number one, I felt that to be a rather inhumane comment. <laughs> but more importantly, the whole idea was that the line that we were trying to sustain primarily was the restaurant line to help save small businesses. Secondarily, like you said, it was a sign of goodwill that doctors and nurses and hospital staff who could probably afford to have lunch were brought something as a sign of gratitude. And people also didn't understand that in a lot of cities, and we operated in 19 cities, in a lot of cities, the places they would usually get lunch weren't open anyway. They weren't allowed to be open. So it really was a question of how are they going to work, you know, two or three 16-hour shifts in a row without the ability to get food. So it all worked out well, but it was interesting as we were doing it in real time. I think, to see what people's reaction was. And I think part of that is a misunderstanding about this notion that you mentioned about conscious and conscientious capitalism, that people can be running businesses they want to sustain, but also have an eye on doing good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. For all of the, you know, the whole world is a different place a year later than it was, was this time last year. Um, and I, I think I've probably personally changed in so many ways just through figuring out how to survive some of this stuff. But one of the, the biggest lessons through all of this and, and is just been around sort of criticism culture. And I, I, I don't know, I don't think that we probably want to go too far down that rabbit trail, but it's just been interesting. Um, you know, in the, the first day that you do something good, um, people want to praise and, and, and you get positive feedback. And then if you keep doing good for very long, it becomes a very mixed review. And, and for me, it's just been, it's been really digging down on the mission and understanding why we're doing it. Um, and, and if you're doing it for the right reasons and you're doing something that has measurable positive impact, then it's not necessarily important that everybody else understand uh, the drive behind it. You know, for me, it was always, it, it, it was, yes, let's keep some restaurants in business and let's keep, you know, those employees in a paycheck so they can make their rent and they can pay their bills. Um, but it's also been, you know, for, for me, it was, it was always the mental health of, of frontline healthcare workers. It, it wasn't about sustenance. Like it wasn't just, you know, make sure that we get calories into them. Um, and, you know, but, but it was challenging because, I've just been exposed in over the last 12 months of just people are so ready to criticize because what about X? What about Y? What about Z? Um, and you can't do everything for everybody. It's the notion of the armchair quarterback, right? What drives me crazy about armchair quarterbacks in the actual analogy of like professional football is that they've never played the game. You know what? I'm happy to listen to a quarterback in the NFL criticize another quarterback. And they never do. Do you know why? Because they're in the trenches and they understand how difficult it is to be a quarterback. The people who are criticizing the quarterbacks are the people who are sitting there literally on their armchairs all day and couldn't run 100 yards if their life depended on it. So that criticism culture 
I think kind of fed into a lot of the cancel culture that we've seen, which is an entirely different topic and we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But this is, so, but you mentioned mental health, which I think is such, because think about what restaurants are. Now I'm living in Montreal, which is where we settled after coming back from Berlin. It's my hometown. I absolutely love being here. And I will tell you that when you're able to travel and come out to Montreal, it is literally one of the great food cities in the world. I spent so much time in Paris over the past few years, which is an amazing food city. And I would put Montreal head to head against Paris. That's how good this city is for food. And the restaurants here have been super creative. Even now with Montreal still under a curfew and Montreal still being a red zone, there are restaurants that are putting together great meals every night for delivery and for takeout with alternate delivery services that are doing better by the restaurants. So when somebody comes for barbecue, to Old Road Barbecue. And it's funny because I'm sitting here doing the podcast with my Old Road Barbecue glass, which I love. Thank you very much. Um, you know, they're looking for some kind of escape. And barbecue, like you said in the beginning, is a food that, you know, really is elemental. It touches into a lot of people's memories and background. You know, it's grilled meat. So you feel that responsibility as a cook, as someone who is giving somebody an escape when they come to your restaurant and eat your food? Yeah, and, and that's, you know, actually one of the biggest challenges of the pandemic is, is sort of taking the community aspect out of, out of the equation, or, or, or it's, it's much harder to right. experience that barbecue as community, because so much, uh, you know, going back to uh, the, your memories of, of what barbecue is, so much of it's around sort of like the community picnic or, you know, the, the family reunions and, and, and things like that, where it's, it's about a group of people. Um, and really because, you know, for, for barbecue, the way that we do it, it's, you know, you can't do it for a group of three people. You, you know, you're always, you're cooking for 50 to 150 people and that's the goal. And that's the only way that it's worth, you know, taking 18 hours for, uh, to nurse that pork shoulder uh, for the, your eventual pulled pork, um, you're doing it for the crowd um, and, and sitting around a table with a group of people and sharing and, and um, you know, where it's just, it, it's all about the flavor and there's no, it's the flavor and the people because there is no pretense, you know, like we're sitting on picnic tables um, with, you know, paper towels in the middle of the table and it's just like, you know, there's no fluff to it. It just, it, it is what it's, what it's always been. Um, and so, you know, that's been a challenge for, for us is, is because I've, you know, taken the, the virus so seriously, it was like, you know, as soon as we were stripping it down to 50% capacity, I was just saying that doesn't actually solve the problem. We're shutting down the dining room. We're doing all outdoor dining. So for the whole summer, we just forced we tripled the size of our patio and pushed everybody outside um, because fundamentally I didn't think that we were truly taking it seriously if we, if, if we were still sitting people indoors, um, especially in, in, if it wasn't going to achieve our feeling of community anyway, then why jump through all those hoops for a completely diminished experience? And, you know, part of the experience of barbecue, and you just alluded to this, is that there are no shortcuts for great barbecue. I look at your tweets and I have since the time you said, I'm gonna open a barbecue restaurant, which I was like, I was definitely one of those people which is like, great, it's your passion, go do it. Um, and I don't believe that everybody should fulfill their passion. 
you knew <laughs> that your passion was going to have so much work. But you don't take any shortcuts. You know, you're you're talking about going to like the fires at four o'clock in the morning or whatever the case may be. So this is a very difficult question. And by the way, we never rehearse podcasts. It's just a conversation. So here's a question that that's going to put you to the test. When you were back in the business of B Corps and you were analyzing businesses, how would you have felt about a barbecue business? Because there are no shortcuts. It's just a lot of labor. Yeah, um, it, it, it's really interesting. My, uh... It's a different hat I'm asking you to put on. I, you can keep the barbecue hat because we all love barbecue, no, I mean, but it's a but, tough one. So there's such a balancing act and it really is like as so we've, you know, quote unquote pivoted, you know, we're on number four now in the last year and just trying to adapt to the, re, the market realities. And so, you know, we're constantly sort of reassessing our own business plan and what's become more and more clear to me um, moving forward. And I think it's what I would have had a problem with in the, you know, before I was, was in the barbecue world is that what we're talking about is a battle of inefficiency versus efficiency because great barbecue is, it, it is really just boils down to the commitment to inefficiency. Exactly. Right. Like you, you can get fancy things and electric smokers and propane backup and all this jazz, and you can, you know, shrink it down to a six hour cook time instead of 16 hours. And you can do this, that, and the other. And, and frankly, the crazy thing is, you know, most people out on the East coast of Nova Scotia wouldn't know the difference anyway. Um, but I sure as hell can tell a difference and people yep. that know, know, and, and you can taste the difference between propane and wood smoke, and you can taste the difference between pellet smoke and hardwood smoke. Um, and so as we are moving forward and as we're trying to adapt uh, to the new market realities. It really is. I think the first two years of the business was all about the commitment to that inefficiency that no matter what, like we're going to take pride in doing it the right way. Um, and now moving forward. And I think this is where I would have challenged people in the past. And it actually is for the, for the health of the business side, it's about finding those, what are the points of efficiency that are not food? So the food is not up for grabs. Like the food is going to be inefficient. Um, and then it's just a constant learning lesson of what is our delivery method? What is our uh, ordering method? What are the, you know, my supply line? What does this look like that we find, you know, one, two, three percent efficiencies in other places? Because, you know, on my labor front, uh, you know, I'm going to be, you know, 30 percent higher than I'm supposed to be on labor because, my cook takes 18 hours or 16 hours to cook something instead of 25 minutes. Yep. But it's just, it's just this balancing act. And so I, <laughs> I really don't have the firm answer on what it looks like um, coming out of COVID, but I know that is the challenge. It's, it's maintaining a relentless pursuit of inefficiency when it comes to the actual product and then trying to learn lessons from anybody and everybody that I can about efficiencies on all the other stuff. That should really be a tagline, the relentless pursuit of inefficiency when it comes to the barbecue. And, you know, what you're saying is really fundamentally something that most entrepreneurs just never get a chance to learn. They feel that once they achieve product market fit, which you obviously have, your product is world class. People who know barbecue and eat your barbecue say that. So you've got product market fit by having the right product and your market loves it. 
But that's only the beginning of a successful, sustainable business. Entrepreneurs think when they've hit product market fit, the game's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I know that, uh, yeah, especially for me, that, that is the thing that we figured out and then everything else, I'm nowhere near figured out. <laughs> well, I know that whatever direction you take the business, it's going to stick with those fundamentals that you've always talked about. And it's funny because barbecue is something, and believe me, you know, I've traveled, as you know, over 3 million miles. I've had real barbecue around the world, even in its many different forms, not just like Southern US barbecue, but I've had, you know, barbecue in China and places like that in Indonesia. But the thing with barbecue is, yes, you have to stick with the fundamentals. It's got to take that kind of time. How you evolve the business, because, you know, all of your combined pivots are just a natural evolution of that business is going to be great. I'm convinced of it because you're always going to stick to that original vision, which is the passion that got you into the barbecue business in the first place. And that's what every entrepreneur should always think about. That's my kind of lesson for anybody listening to the podcast. Any clues or any tips you want to give us about things that may be coming down the road? Or should we stay tuned? Maybe you come back and rejoin us in season three. <laughs> well, well real quickly, I, I'd just be interested. Um, you know, you're talking about traveling the world and there being barbecue all around the world. It, it, it's sort of a, a uh, passion of mine to, to hear about some of those experiences because with, from, you know, before we ever started this, something that drove me nuts is how much uh, of the barbecue world north of the Mason-Dixon line is just caricature. And it's like theme park uh, barbecue that, it, you know, there's some guys in Toronto that are all about oh, we are Texas style or we're Kansas oh, City style or like and I make a point to like I'm trained in Tennessee style but what we're doing is Nova Scotia barbecue and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be a caricature of anything and so we're you know we're experimenting in in some seafood things we're experimenting in some things that make it uniquely Nova Scotian but it's also just like picking and choosing whatever works from around the world um so, you know, a question I like to ask people is like, when you close your eyes and just think of amazing barbecue, what is that picture that pops into your head? Well, I'll first give the answer as to what bad barbecue is. So when we lived <laughs> in Berlin, we went to a U.S. Southern barbecue place. It was going to be, listen, you didn't need to give me the foreshadowing. I knew what the end result was going to be. It was horrible. It was probably worse than going into any Southern U.S. grocery store and buying, you know, packaged barbecue. It was, it was awful in every way. So when I think of barbecue, I think of the long, slow cooking of meats. So somewhere like Berlin, that would actually be the Turkish doner kebab, which is Berlin. The two most popular foods in Berlin are currywurst, which again, I never understood the attraction to, <laughs> right? It's basically, you know, like really bad sausages in, in sweet ketchup and yeah. the kebab which is slowly roasted. It's a little bit like the hero that we get in North America, but it's real barbecue. And then if I think of China, I've lived in Beijing, I think of the real roasted duck. So when you go yeah. to some of these roasted duck palaces, and I'm saying palaces because you wouldn't believe, some of these places have the capacity of serving several thousand diners at once. The process of roasting a duck takes days. The, the um, tradition and the ceremony of how they slice the skin, they prepare the meat, there's a certain way of eating it. They actually blow air into the ducks as the ducks are slow roasting to give it its proper flavor and proper shape is just amazing barbecue. The same thing with Hong Kong and roasted pork. 
These are long, slow processes. I've seen out in Hong Kong in the streets, you know, like long, long roasting processes that take as long as the stuff that's you're doing, that you're doing. They all have different flavors. I don't believe that, you know, it has to be Southern barbecue when you're in Beijing. I, I probably wouldn't try that. <laughs> but, that but it's that commitment to, in China, there's a traditional way that you roast a duck. No matter which one of the places you like to go to, the ducks are going to be roasted the same way. And there's always an argument, by the way, about which place is the best in Beijing. And then there's always the pan-China argument. Is the best roast duck in Beijing? Is it in Shanghai? Is it elsewhere? And everybody has their opinion. But the tradition is the same and the process is the same. So I would say that great barbecue, great Southern barbecue for me, is someone being committed to the same process that you are. And then everybody puts their own personal signature on it. Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's great to hear. And that, that's, you know, that's where I'd love to learn more about, uh, you know, things like uh, roast duck in, in China, because it is, you know, it's just a different ordering of the fire smoke meat. <laughs> that's all that we're playing with here. But then there's, there's really deliberate processes and points to check in and, and measurements that you're taking um, that add up to greatness in my mind. Well, when this pandemic loosens a little bit, you'll come to Montreal. I will show you the real smoked meat, which is Montreal's like great meat tradition. Um, and it's done by several places so well in so many different ways. And basically, as people know, it's just a very, very long cured meat that's become one of the big traditions of the city. So we'll talk about barbecue around the world. We'll have meat. Aaron, I want to thank you very much for giving us your time today. Everybody check out Old Row Barbecue in Truro, Nova Scotia, because I know you're going to be up to great things. Hey, thanks for taking the time to chat. It's good to hook up. Thanks a lot. Take care. Talk to you Bye. soon. Bye.